The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Oh, Father, we thank you for the good gift of your Son, Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus, we praise you for your good work, atoning for our sins, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we are instruments in your hands. And there is no better, no greater joy or purpose than serving you. So please open our hearts to your word this morning. Use us for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's work is always good. Even when he uses people like us. Broken tools. Broken even broken and sinful circumstances. He is able to promise and to accomplish a good result that both glorifies himself and works good into our lives. This is the great promise, right, of Romans eight twenty eight, that for those who love God, all things work together for good because we are called according to his always good purposes. Many circumstances don't feel good in the moment. And sin and its effects are never good. But God amazingly is a God of redemption. It's how he has continually worked throughout his story. Working and promising and building toward that ultimate event. One that showed the ultimate evil bringing about the decisive victory for the ultimate good at the cross. It's good news. There's no news as good as this news. And our resurrected Lord, he commissioned his disciples to go and to spread this news. It's so good, as we'll see in our text, it's so good, it's worth suffering persecution. It's worth beatings and torture and even terrible deaths in order to bring people from darkness to light, from death to eternal life. And if we see just how good this is, if we see that we have this incredible treasure to share, that we have this ministry by the mercy of God, then we will not lose heart. We need to see that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Christ, who is the very image of God. And if we see this, if we see this, then we'll understand that it's it's not about ourselves. That life is not about, it's not about our safety It's not about our comfort, certainly not our glory. It's about Jesus. And when we share the gospel, God is able to work through us. And if he decides to do so, the very God who, who in Genesis 1 said, let there be light. He works through us to shine in the hearts of people, to give them the light 
of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing privilege. We're like jars of clay, broken and fragile and and not very impressive. And God has placed within us a treasure. And this reality tells us that the power of salvation belongs to God and not to us. The power is His. And we may be afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we shouldn't be driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because the life of Jesus is working through us. Through our weakness. Even through our death. For the sake of eternal life. And when we get this. When we understand that this is why we exist. Then we will not lose heart. We'll realize that in glory. We're going to look back at our afflictions. And they're going to actually seem light and momentary. Compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has given us. That all sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is the truth that Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite chapters. And it's what he teaches us through his actions in Acts chapter 16. If you remember, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, guided Paul and Silas along with Timothy preventing them from going into Asia Minor and then preventing them from going into Bithynia, leading them over to Troas where Paul received a vision calling them to come over to Macedonia. And they concluded that God wanted them to go and preach the gospel there. At this point, it appears that Luke, the author of Acts, he joins them on their journey. So, I'm going to go through a long passage, so I'll give you a break this week. You can remain seated. We're going to begin with verse 11 of chapter 16 in Acts and um, go to the end of the chapter. So follow along as I read. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl 
who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace for the rulers, before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. So, they come to Macedonia and the city of Philippi. It's, a, it's the beginning of a new church. 
a church that was incredibly dear to Paul. And we see this in his letter, of course, to the Philippians. Something unique in the book of Philippians is that Paul doesn't write to correct them. He simply encourages them and expresses his thankfulness to God for them. They're a church who has encouraged and financially supported Paul. They're partners in the gospel from the very beginning. And here in Acts 16, we read about this beginning. And it appears that this first convert, Lydia, she's a key member of the Philippian church because what we read, at least initially, is they met in her home. Around 10 to 12 years later, Paul wrote to the Philippian church from a Roman prison and they knew of his willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel because when they first met him, he was unjustly imprisoned for a short time there in Philippi. And many people like to imagine, and it'd certainly be appropriate if it was the Philippian jailer who read this letter to the church. Wouldn't that be great? The core members that made up this church, we're going to look at this morning, they're described to us by Luke. And what stands out is that the people who will make up this church and deeply love and care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are people who, before they believed would have never had anything to do with one another. So different. Different in every way. I say this because people tend to, we tend to gravitate to those who are like us, don't we? Same hobbies, same interests, same same kind of work, same social standing, culture, or race. And let's face it, the three characters described here by Luke, they have nothing in common. Lydia has a house in Philippi, but she's from Thyatira in Asia Minor. She's described as a seller of purple goods. Purple, which was a color only worn by the wealthy and royalty. Her hometown of Thyatira was famous for this this very rare, very expensive purple dye. So she probably had another house there and traveled back and forth for business. She's an impressive woman. No man is mentioned, so she's either single or a widow. And it's her business. And her clientele are the rich and famous. She's, she's in, the high, in the world of high fashion. She's rubbing shoulders with the elite. She's a religious woman also. She's surrounded by Greek and Roman culture and their pantheon of gods. And yet, at some point, she's exposed to Judaism because she's described as a worshiper of God. In other words, she's, she's a God-fearer. And if you remember, a God-fearer is a Gentile who, who hasn't converted to Judaism, but participates as much as they're allowed in Jewish worship and study. 
It's an interesting combination because her clientele probably wouldn't be the same people that she's meeting with down by the river and for prayer. It doesn't appear that that Judaism also it, it, Judaism doesn't seem to be very be very popular in the city of Philippi because there's no synagogue. They're forced to meet outside, outside of town. And later, the people who beat Paul and Silas, they make accusations that betray kind of an anti-Semitic attitude in the city. Also, to establish a synagogue only requires ten Jewish men. And when Paul and Silas go to their this meeting down by the river, the only people that are described there are women. So Judaism is not a very big deal there in Philippi. Lydia, she's an interesting character in that she's extremely wealthy, yet seems to be searching beyond the various Greek and Roman gods and is interested in the god of this this marginalized group of Jewish women. Luke gives us three characters that, that are really the core members of the Philippian church. We have Lydia with her wealthy, with her wealth and her multiple homes. And then there's this demon-possessed girl, demon-possessed slave girl. What a contrast. They would have had nothing to do with one another. Lydia's like a wealthy fashion designer eating at five-star restaurants, and this slave girl is something like a teen prostitute living under a bridge with her pimp bringing a Big Mac to her every once in a while. A massive contrast. Nothing to do with one another. And then the third character Luke introduces is this Philippian jailer. He's, he's blue-collar kind of guy. Probably ex-military, working a job at the jail. Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony with a lot of retired Roman soldiers or, or other civil servants. And the people were granted Roman citizenship. This, this is in Macedonia, but they're granted Roman citizenship. Their dress and customs were Roman. They were absolved from tribute and taxation, and even though they lived according to Roman law, they were somewhat autonomous. It was like a, it was like a little sliver of Rome in Macedonia, and the people, they considered themselves Roman. It was, it was, Philippi was their Rome away from Rome. So, high fashion designer, blue collar worker, and slave girl. And it's beautiful, isn't it? It's what's so different, or what ought to be different about Christ's church, where different kinds of people were brought together. Nothing else in all the world, think about it, nothing else in all the world has the ability to penetrate the heart of people so different from one another, but to penetrate their hearts and speak to such different people with different needs and problems, freeing them and then uniting them as brothers and sisters. It's beautiful. And I say free because the slave girl is not the only slave here. 
Everyone has a master. The slave girl had a master within and, and well, masters on the outside as well who used and controlled her as a source of income. Lydia, she had her own masters. She's a self-made woman in a very lucrative business. So what's her master? Is it, is it comfort? Is it security? Is it doing whatever's necessary in the pressures of this world to keep that comfort and security? Is it status? Is it the opinion of others? What masters us? What masters her? When we come to Jesus, we're all, we're all turning from something that masters us. And the only good master is the one that's able to work the greatest good into our lives. And regardless of who we are, whether we're living in luxury or under a bridge somewhere or middle-class blue-collar worker, we all, need, we all need God. This is what we'll see in this chapter. We all need God to sovereignly do a work within us. Speaking light into the darkness in order to save us. So Luke gives us examples of a, of a rich Asian businesswoman, a Greek slave girl, and a Roman jailer. Their backgrounds are different. They're different in race, religion, sex, occupation, social status. And yet, just like us, Everyone needs to be set free. Everyone needs to be set free so that we might serve the only good master who is Jesus. The church is the only place with the only message that has the power to save us. And it's for all people, all nations, all categories, uniting us in the love of Christ. This is what Luke wants us to see here. Different people who are saved and brought together by the good work of Jesus. So let's work our way through beginning with Lydia. It's, it's always been Paul's practice to bring the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Typically when he goes to a place, he looks for a local synagogue where there'll be, be some understanding of the God of the Bible and his promises, and especially his promises concerning the Messiah. So he wants to go there. He doesn't find a synagogue in Philippi, and apparently he knows that the equivalent to this would be found down at the riverside. It's there that he meets Lydia. She's described as a worshiper of God. Another way of saying that she's one of these God-fearers. She's someone interested in Judaism, but, but not a proselyte. Not submitted to Jewish ceremonial law. And Luke gets, he gets right to her conversion. But notice, notice that he doesn't describe this conversion as Lydia opening her heart to God, but that it's the Lord who opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We've seen this throughout Acts. There's a common theme in Acts that has to do with, with the sovereign, 
saving act of God, which brings about our response of faith. In Acts 13, we read, as many as were appointed to eternal life, what's the result of God's sovereign work of appointing them to eternal life? They believed. God does the initial act of appointing or ordaining, or as it's said here, he opened her heart so that she might pay attention to the gospel message. And it's not, it's not God responding to, to our work. It's us responding to his. Everyone has a master. We're all enslaved. And slaves aren't free. No, they need to be set free. It takes God to do the good work. He's the one who opens our hearts. And because of this, we believe. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 6. We don't, we don't come to Jesus on our own. No, it's the, it's the Father who gives us to Jesus. And everyone that the Father gives to Jesus comes to Jesus. And all who come to Jesus are received by him. Here's how Jesus said it. But I said to you that you have, that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And Paul's involved in this process. He has a part to play in God's story, and so do we. We're all broken tools that God uses to open people's hearts to the truth of salvation. We need to always remember that that we're called to go and make disciples, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, and that it's not ultimately us. It's God who does the work of changing a person's heart. We're called to speak, but we're, we're only a tool in the hand of our sovereign Lord who opens, he's the one who opens people's hearts to pay attention. And this word translated here as pay attention doesn't just mean that she's, she's listening, that she was sleeping and now she's listening. That's not what it means. What, what it means is that the Lord had a hold on her mind and that she was receiving. She was responding to the good news. The NIV translates this as the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It's the work of God to open or to speak light and change our dark hearts. He regenerates us. He causes us to be born again and gives us the gift of faith, which will always respond by coming to the Savior who will never cast us away. Okay, I know. Some of you are thinking, this seems like a lot of... A lot of attention on a theological detail, Pastor Brian. Why are you, why are you making this point? Oh, I'm sick of this. <laughs> I love it. The reason why I want to spend a little bit of time on this, I mean, this is what we see going on in, in the chapter, of course. God doing this inner work. We're all slaves. But I want to spend some time on it because it's important... For us to understand grace. 
We love the grace of God, but do, are we consistent with it? Do we really understand it? As Jonah said in the belly of the great fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His work. And it's, it's important to get this order right so that no one may boast. So that none of us can rob God of the glory that He alone deserves. It's, it's His grace. Lydia, Lydia, she has the same need. She's no better than a lowly, demon-possessed slave girl. It's grace. It's the sovereign work of God. Apart from the Lord opening her heart and yours, there would be no faith. There would be no turning from our old masters to the only good master. We are not saved by our goodness, or we're not saved by our better starting position, Lydia, over this demon-possessed slave girl. We're saved by our gracious God who is good so that we might be like Him and do good. And this is the immediate result that we see in Lydia. God who is good opens her heart and it resulted in salvation where she then opens her home for the good work of the gospel in the lives of others. There ought to be change. But we see here, you know, it's like creation. God speaks, and what He creates is good. And we, who are made in His image, are called to speak, and by doing so, God continues to create something good in and through us. The next example Luke gives us is this this slave girl possessed by a demon. Verse 16 says that she had a spirit of divination. The Greek is pneuma pythona, which literally means a Pythonian spirit, which has to do with the Pythian god Apollo. According to Greek mythology, Zeus brought into existence at Delphi an oracle, a place where the gods could be consulted. The oracle was guarded by Python, a female serpent, and they believed that Apollo, Zeus's son, was embodied at Delphi in the Python. I was going to show a snake and leave it up there, but then I remembered years ago I had a picture of a awful looking spider and I left it up there too long and it gave people nightmares so no snake thank you it's a thing of nightmares isn't it there's a there's a snake inside of her or worse a demon that's associated with the python god which tells the future through her she's mastered inside and out by a demon, and as a victim of human trafficking. She's owned, and people pay her so that the python spirit inside of her will tell them something from the spirit world. It's creepy. It's terrible. It's it's incredibly sad. And for many days, she's been following Paul and Silas around, shouting something that this... That's true, but not really. 
Not really, because it's something that's intended to deceive. It's how Satan tends to work, isn't it? He, he, man, Satan speaks with a lot of truth, giving us a lot of truth, lowering our guards. There's this appearance of truth, but then he uses it, he twists it in order to deceive. And this is what's going on here. She's shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And we might think, yeah, is that the best you can do? What's so, what's so annoying about that, Paul? We hear this, and from our perspective, we think, well, they are servants of the Most High God. But again, Satan is the great deceiver. And this title is not the orthodox confession that we think for the people in Philippi, for those who are immersed in a polytheistic culture. What they would hear is a pagan title. For them, the title, the Most High God, had to do with Zeus. Paul ignores her for days, but eventually, not wanting any any confusion that would pair them as associates working on the same team, he becomes greatly annoyed. It's funny when you read that, isn't it? You think, is there justification for me being annoyed? He's annoyed. But it's a righteous annoyance. Kind of like a person being angry. And most of the time, 99% of the time it's sin. But there is such a thing as a righteous anger. Most of our annoyance and anger, it, it is just sinful. But there is a kind that's right. The right kind has to do with God. It's right for us to be angry when it's God who is mocked. When it's His reputation. When it's not simply about us and our selfish pride. And we know from Paul's letter to this Philippian church that regardless of people's wrong motives, as long as Christ is proclaimed, he will rejoice. So Paul is not annoyed because of any personal offense, but because this demon is trying to deceive people into thinking that the gospel, it's just just another way, it's just another path among the pantheon of gods. It's a righteous annoyance. And Paul is moved by Jesus to shut this demon up, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. By the power and authority of Jesus, she's set free. The demon left her. And now her owners, well, now they're annoyed because she's of no use to them. She can't make them any more money. There's no use for her. So they drag Paul and Silas to the magistrates who who strip them and publicly beat them with wooden rods. It's it's severe. It's humiliating and incredibly painful. And we must ask ourselves, would I be willing to endure this kind of pain, this kind of suffering, this kind of humiliation for the sake of Jesus? We've never faced anything like this. But we ought to consider it nonetheless because one day we might. I'm sure some of the pastors up in Canada never thought they'd be jailed 
for the sake of God's word. And if we were thrown into a dungeon and had our feet put into socks, not, not socks, stocks, not something fluffy and comfy, not, and also not something just simply to secure them. Some stocks were, I mean, they're spread way apart, spreading the legs, making your muscles in your legs spasm. It's a form of torture. So, if it was you, would you pray? Probably, we'd all be crying out, Lord, please help me, please get me out of, deliver me from this terrible place. We would pray, yes, we would pray, but would you sing? Would you sing? I like what Calvin said about this, that generally we cannot pray properly as we ought without praising God at the same time. And that's what's going on here. Their praise, the hymns that they sang were likely various psalms that remind them God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And what a gospel witness this was to the other prisoners as as we read their listening. How strange. Let the people around you see your confidence, your hope, your joy in God, especially when you're hurting. Let people see something different in you. Everyone prays in times of trouble. There's no atheists in foxholes, right? But singing. Well, singing, singing's weird. But it's a good weird. A righteous kind of weird. Because it's about God. It's about your trust and your confidence in God. It's about your hope in the promise of God to be working in. And even this, even this terrible circumstance for your good. And singing implies something more. It also implies joy. Joy that's based on a good master. That you can always trust, that that is sovereign and powerful, good, joy even in the midst of pain and suffering. And these aren't, you know, Paul, what he's doing, he's practicing what he later would preach. He sang. And knowing this kind of joy, he is able to say, rejoice in your sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. He practiced what he preached. They sang. And if they sang Psalm 46, it must have been amazing when the mountains really did move. When the earth really did give way. 
And the foundations of that prison were shaken to the point of the the doors flying open and the bonds coming loose from everyone. And now Luke introduces us to another core member of the Philippian church. With Lydia, she served whatever gave her wealth, comfort, and a sense of control. The slave girl served masters of addiction and abuse and people and demonic forces that controlled her. And with the jailer, it's something like duty and hard work. Things that look good. And without honoring his master of duty, well... Under these circumstances, he may as well just kill himself. That was his attitude. That's what mastered him. Lydia is freed and then uses her wealth for the glory of God. The slave girl is emotionally, physically, and spiritually freed to serve God. And this jailer, he he comes to the end of himself. He's so hopeless in his life and this, this circumstance that... That he'd rather kill himself in private than endure the shame of a public execution. When a Roman guard lost any prisoner, the penalty was a shameful public execution for failing to do his duty. Some would run away, but duty being his master, he would rather he would rather die. He had nothing left. And as he was about to fall on his sword, Paul cried out, Don't harm yourself, we're all here! And the jailer calls for light and rushes in to see. And it says in verse 29 that that he trembled with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas. I'm curious. Why was he afraid? Why now would he be afraid? I can understand the fear before. Why was he afraid? You'd think, you'd think the emotion would be incredible relief instead of trembling in fear. And I think the answer has to do with a, with a similar internal work of God in him. With Lydia, it says that the Lord opened her heart and caused her to respond to the gospel. With the slave girl, Jesus did this internal work, kicking out out the demon. And with the jailer, apparently God gave him a sense of fear that something supernatural had just occurred. He probably had heard Paul and Silas with their weird singing and praying to God, and now he's beginning to realize that their God is the one who brought about this earthquake and caused his whole world to fall apart. Like the prodigal son, he came to the end of himself. Like Isaiah, at the realization of God's holiness, he crumbles to the ground in utter fear, undone. And in the midst of such Holy fear. The only thing left to say is, what must I do to be saved? Some wonder if he meant, what must I do to be saved from punishment or 
You know, because the jail is ruined. Or what must I do to be saved from the consequences having to do with my duty? But no. The jailer called for lights. Instead of relief, he was undone. And I think the only explanation is that God spoke light into his dark and hopeless heart. He spoke through Paul who said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Turn from whatever master you serve and Jesus will be the good master who saves you. And like Lydia, we see, we see the good work of God resulting in a changed heart that now does good. That now responds doing good to others. The prisoners that he had just tortured, he now cares for. Washing their wounds, even bringing them into his house and giving them a meal. Oh, there's... there's it's a long passage. There's a, there's a lot of different things to talk about here. But one thing I want to end with is simply that he is described as rejoicing. Rejoicing for having believed in God. At the heart of the gospel is a response of joy. There's no greater joy than knowing and serving Jesus. Jesus who frees us from the various masters who will never satisfy us. It's appropriate to end with this word, rejoice. The jailer rejoiced in believing. And I like the thought, I do like the thought of this jailer being the one who ten years later read these words to Lydia and to the slave girl and to the many other believers in this Philippian church, believers that, that God set free through them. So imagine this jailer standing and reading a letter from their beloved brother Paul, their partner in the gospel, who encouraged them to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Oh, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are good, and we rejoice in you, that you have chosen to have mercy on us and graciously save us. Lord, thank you for the truth that you are sovereign, that you so graciously use us in the lives of others. Thank you for our certain hope. Lord, give us the heart and attitude of Paul, treasuring you prioritizing your goodness to the point of being willing to suffer and, and even die for the sake of sharing the gospel. Might we, Lord, might we be 
more and more like these examples of your grace. Might we respond to your good work in us by doing good to those around us. And as you have opened our hearts to see your glory in Jesus, cause us, Lord, to open our homes and our lives to others. Cause us to be, cause us to be a generous church, a loving church for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.